This week, we're highlighting another podcast in the Democracy Group Network. Another Way is a show founded by Equal Citizens and Larry Lessig, a Harvard Law professor and democracy reformer. In each episode, they break down what's wrong with our democracy and how it can be fixed with some of the best minds in the biz. They recently sat down with Jimmy Wales, co-founder of Wikipedia, to unpack the growing polarization in the media, digital algorithms, and the addictiveness of technology, and how to reform the informational ecosystem to ensure better deliberation. They also did a recent show on the fight for voting rights reform, and another interviewing our very own Lee Drutman about the two-party doom loop of American politics. To give it a listen, just search for Another Way wherever you find podcasts. Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about why our institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. Today, I'm sad to say that our courageous co-host, Lee Drutman, can't join us. Uh, he's He's got other things. He is indisposed, if you will. But Julia and I are going to do our best to carry the torch in his absence to soldier on, if you will. And to help us, we have a special guest joining us today. I'm very, very excited to introduce to you all uh, a very good friend of mine, Tony Madonna, who is a, a associate professor at the Department of Political Science at my alma mater, the University of Georgia. I like to think that he went to Georgia in search of quality students like me in undergrad, even though we didn't overlap when I was there. Um, it's a great place, but I've gotten to know him over the years. He's a fabulous scholar. He's a man about town. He's a, got some great music taste. He is obsessed with Abraham Baldwin. He likes to talk about the 19th century. And I just found out this morning he loves Mark Knopfler. So what's not to like there? Welcome, Tony. How are you? Hey, thanks, James. Uh, I'm always uh, always embarrassed when somebody introduces me, uh, but that, uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, uh, things are good. This is uh, that, by the way, is exactly why I ended up going to the University of Georgia. So uh, excited to be here. Excited to talk uh, some U.S. Congress. I do. I think I I have it on good authority now that when the University of Georgia recruits faculty members, they say James Walner went here, and then people jump for joy and say, "Well, that's the kind of person that I would like to to teach." So yeah, I got I got that question from several assistant deans <laughs> right on the uh, in the interview. So yeah, I don't even remember much of undergrad. So it'll be, it's uh, it was a fun time though. Well, in today's episode, Tony, hopefully you're going to be able to help us answer a question that I think a lot of people just assume they already know the answer to, and that is, should lawmakers be afraid of taking votes? And to get to the bottom of that, to, to better understand why they don't like taking votes, and, and also, I think, why Congress is presently dysfunctional, we're going to talk about, and Julie and I are going to ask you about what goes through their heads when they think about votes and voting. And how people in the past in Congress, and you know, I think three of us like to talk about the 19th century a lot, but in the 19th century or even in the 20th century or even 20 years ago, how those lawmakers felt about taking votes and, and why things have changed. And we're going to also ask about kind of different ways to, to get beyond this dysfunction and, and to basically help lawmakers conquer their fear of taking notes. And maybe they need an in-house therapist to go with an in-house counsel. I don't know what it is. But on, along the way, as I've mentioned to our listeners, be on guard for, for Abraham Baldwin references. And maybe, you know, there's, maybe there won't be any. But also for excessive discussion, I would hope, of the 19th century. But, you know, Tony, let's just start there. Why are, why are lawmakers scared of taking votes? Like, what do they think is going to happen to them if they take a vote? Is the vote going to hit back? What, what's wrong with this? I like the thing I appreciate about this uh, this question, James, is you 
you didn't slow play this at all. You just started me with a with a pretty loaded question, and uh, yeah, it's well, that, that's that's what I do. Yeah, that's uh, that's <laughs> good. It's good. Um, I, I'll also kind of just give your listeners a heads up uh, when we start talking about roll call voting and where it's coming from. You're you're gonna you're gonna be seeing a little bit more 18th century uh, than I think like uh, we might anticipate going in. Yeah. Wow, I don't think we've spoken about the 18th century much on the podcast. This is gonna be great. Uh, so yeah, I mean uh, when you. When you start, when you say scared, right? Uh, and certainly, it's the the instances where a member is scared to take a vote that gets a lot of attention, right? You'll see these stories about, you know, Democrats don't want this bill to come to the floor because they don't want to have to cast this vote, or or vice versa. Uh, I think that gets a disproportionate amount of attention, but it's it's certainly fair to say that legislators hate taking votes, uh, whether or not it's due uh, primarily to fear or because of other reasons. Uh, it's tough to say, you know, it's certainly electorally, there's, there's a bit of a story there that I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, historically, they found them overly time consuming uh, and found them to be a bit of a nuisance. You know, there's also the obvious, maybe a lawmaker is doing something scuzzy and they don't want that highlighted or they want that, don't want that stripped from their, uh, from the, a bill, something like that. Or, you know, as a few have argued, roll calls are, can be intentionally misleading. Uh, so I think it's I think it's certainly a combination of all those factors. Votes are often abused. Uh, that was an issue that uh, certainly when the founders thought a lot about early on when they were debating whether or not like to include recorded voting or to provide for recorded voting. Julia, what uh, what do you think? I mean, do you think lawmakers are afraid of taking votes? Do you think what Tony said was wise? What's what, what's on your mind? So I have a, a lot of thoughts about this. This is a great question, and you know I'm probably the you know the least Congress watcher person on this podcast, but I think about this a lot in terms of the disconnect between policy and and politics. And I recently had a conversation with someone. We were kind of talking to a group of students about what gets done in an election year, and of course the answer to that is nothing you know, on the legislative side and on the policy side, and it's sort of this conventional wisdom that in an election year, you couldn't possibly ask lawmakers to vote on anything. And that to me is like simultaneously very obvious in the current context, but also not an obvious logic for a democratic political system. And we have lots of examples of big legislation passed in an election year. And you could imagine, in theory, a world in which getting things done and the sort of output of um, of, a, of, a, of a bill of a piece of legislation would be appealing to constituents. And so that's how I that's how I think about this question. I think about it in in, in election terms and in developmental terms. So I have I have so many questions uh, for Tony. One is kind of, you know, is this way of thinking about things, is this, you know, does this make sense? Is it connected to some of the work that you've done on roll call votes? And also, what is the developmental story? Do you have a sense of when this happened? Because it seems to me, I'll lay out my sort of sense of this, which is that it seems to me that this is a this is a fairly recent development. This is somewhat a product of perhaps the ways in which the House has changed in the 70s and then in the 90s with Newt Gingrich and the sort of structuring of Congress to be, particularly in that latter instance, to be really performative in its 
in its behavior, um, and that that ultimately has been pretty corrosive on on politics, enforcing this disconnect between between politics and policy, where everything is about the symbolic vote and the symbolic action, and not so much about you know, hey, we could actually produce a policy that could have benefits for voters, and that would then be politically advantageous for us and create a what is a virtuous circle, or just a semi-functioning democracy, I guess. Virtuous circles are pretty ambitious. So those are my those are my first round of questions. I, I really also want to get to the Senate and the filibuster and mansion and cinema at some point. Awesome. Yeah, no, I think that's a, it's a great group of questions. And uh, let me kind of start with the, the point about the electoral concern, right? Obviously, that's the first thing that will get reported is that there is this electoral concern from members. And We've political scientists have long known and members have reiterated this that most of the general public has no idea how the members vote on most issues. I think Matthews and Simpson 75 reported that nearly 80% of members did not think voters were aware of their voting record in Congress. But they also reported that those members believed that just a couple bad votes could hurt them. And they complained that, hey, we don't know what those votes are going to be. Um, so determining like the handful of votes that's going to be impactful can be taxing on members. You know, in terms of the developmental story, I think the developmental story is absolutely fascinating. And yeah, I think it's probably the central premise of the book is, is that we've been working on is like what what's led to this uh, change in recorded voting activity. And uh, and I think Julia, you're absolutely right about this. Uh, uh, the increased primacy of the position taking roll call. Like one of the stats we found uh, in the book, uh, we've been working on this project that absolutely shocked me is we're in a period now where I think it was something like only 15% of all House roll calls in the last Congress in our book, which I think was 113th, maybe 18%, uh, were on measures that eventually became law, right? The rest of them were all on. You know, measures that were either doomed to fail or didn't become law or whatever, right? They were largely going to end up position-taking type votes. And that was a drastic change uh, if you look at this over time. But yeah, I, I think it, from a developmental standpoint, I think a number of things certainly changed. Uh, but I would like to point out too, it, it is, I don't want to play up too much that this is a new thing in terms of members being wary of taking votes. Members never wanted to take votes, right? Historically speaking, uh, they always found them to be a hassle. Whether or not it was an electorally driven hassle is tough to say. And in fact, if you look back at the, you know, first off, uh, one of the things I always love about this is this is really an American phenomenon. Recorded voting was not provided for in any other really democratic government until you started to see the states adopt it uh, and the Articles of Confederation provide for it. Uh, I think the practice of publicizing how legislators voted occurred on rare occasion in the 17th and 18th century Great Britain. Uh, the first known instance, and this is from Robert Luce, who's a scholar that I know James uh, always likes, his 1922 book. He claims that the first known instance occurred in 1641 after a vote uh, ordering the execution of Thomas Wentworth, the first Earl of Strafford. Right, the names of those who voted against the bill have retained to republicize as betrayers of their country, and the. The idea was that, you know, the British wanted to then go and murder these people. And if you find that interesting too, let me know, because my co-author made me cut like three pages out of that story from the book, uh, because it really had nothing to do with the overall project. But uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of fascinating detail about the Earl of Strafford. Are you, I'm just to interject, are you, is your co-author my wife? Because I was quoting from uh, Luce's Legislative Procedure book uh, last night about the amendments used to get multiple readings. And she looked at me like I 
needed to stop speaking immediately, which I did. So, because I'm smart. I'm I'm gonna tell my husband this just so he knows he's not alone and that it you know it, it could be worse. Yeah. No. Uh, no. My co-author uh, Mike Lynch, uh, I think understands that when I go off like on the side tangent that his job is partially just to kind of cut this stuff down. I mean, just one, I mean, sorry, but Luce wrote four books on this. Like it was four volumes, which you no, no publisher would let you write four volumes on this stuff today, but good for him. Yeah. 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 When we think about things that have changed that are depressing, I think that's one of them. Yeah. By the way, Stratford was eventually beheaded. He guys needed that. Uh, I mean, he had it coming, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. I have no sorry idea. Sorry to interrupt you, Tony. No, 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 please do. Yeah. Uh, sorry, what was we talking about? Yeah. It's... No, this is good. My, my like, academic tangents at home usually uh, involve, like, Eisenhower and no one gets beheaded. Yeah, that's always, like, uh, my broader, whenever I talk about British history, like, I love American history, but British history always seems cooler. Just the far more personal way to kill somebody by beheading them. Yeah. All right. Well, we t- this, this podcast certainly took a turn. Maybe they should be afraid of taking roll call votes. That's yeah, there you go. That that seems very justified. That, that this this took a turn. But so just to to interject here, it seems to me that there are different reasons, different motivations, if you will. If I can put on my psychologist hat here, and I don't actually have a psychologist cap or a kooky captain's cap for our Dr. Seuss friends, um, is that. A member may not want to take a vote because there's obstruction, right? And this is one of the things that you see early in congressional history, where members are using roll call votes to obstruct obstruct Congress and try to buy time on something, which is a very interesting concept because the Constitution safeguards the ability with a sufficient second, which in the Senate, at least, is anywhere from 11 to to 20 uh, members. In the House, I have no idea. I can't do one-fifth of 8,000 people because there's so many people in the House. But it does give you something that you can use as a minority to obstruct that can't be taken away by the majority. Uh, but, but we don't see members obstructing. And we'll get to, I guess, and Julia mentioned this uh, earlier, about the filibuster, we can get to that, but that's a very physical form of obstruction that we don't see these days. It's a very aggressive form of obstruction that we haven't seen in a very long time. Members may not want to take votes because, as Tony said earlier, it highlights uh, provisions, right? They, they don't want to risk calling attention to something potentially, something scuzzy, which I, I love. It's a great, very technical term. But, but that doesn't explain in the current context why other members aren't forcing votes on those provisions and trying to to take those provisions out of bills. It may, or at least trying to highlight the fact, you know, you may not want to have votes because you want to keep the compromise uh, bill on the floor from unraveling. But, you know, especially with regard to the Senate, that implies that there are compromise bills on the floor that they have put together and that could unravel. And generally speaking, the Senate's uh, legislative productivity has declined significantly. And then I think that brings us to the electoral context today, which is that you may not want to take a tough vote because of the electoral risk that that involves. It could highlight divisions in the party. If you're an individual member, it could make it difficult for you to win a primary or a general election. And I think that's really interesting because it's it's ironic because if you think about it, elections are, in theory, I guess, about, about accountability. And this fear of taking votes, or at least a tendency to not take votes, dilutes accountability. It weakens that accountability mechanism that exists between uh, voters and their representatives called elections. Um, But there's another one that I want to throw out there, which I think is interesting, and that is control. 
control and fear of uncertainty. And, it, and I think you see this, especially in the Senate, maybe in the House with the rise of closed rules and the decline of kind of amendment activity there. But overall, the deliberative nature of the bodies has been restricted considerably. And if you look at the Senate, there's more than one way to, to vote, right? You can have a recorded vote, which is what we're talking about today. But you can have voice votes. You can have division votes. Um, and then lastly, you can just pass things by UC in the Senate. And what you've seen, particularly with regard to amendments throughout the last you know, 50, 60, 70 years in the Senate, is that the Senate used to do most of its business with amendments via voice vote. And unanimous consent was very small. And what you've seen increasingly is like, and um, this is, you know, I'm sure it's declined lately because I don't do any amendments, but the voice vote numbers have declined precipitously, and it's almost been like mirrored image in the inverse. Uh, unanimous consent is to pass amendments has increased. What's the difference between those two things? Neither one leaves a record per se. Unanimous consent is something that you can control. It's something that you can set up in advance. It's something that you can structure. It's something that is a lot freewheeling and off the cuff, right? It's not It's not something that, you know, voice votes can happen whenever, who knows what's gonna, you know, it just, but unanimous consent is a much more structured thing. And it, it is easier to uh, protect against too, because you just have to object if you're a leader or, a, or, or the presiding officer and somebody tries to do something that you don't like. But what do you think about that, Tony, this idea of control and the fear of losing control in today's environment? How does that, is that related at all? Or am I off on some like wrong tangent and you need to turn me around here? Well, actually, I'm happy to talk about control because I do think you're on the right track with that. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, would you mind if I got, you, you were talking about the sufficient second clause and uh, accountability through roll call voting. And I wanted to see if it would be all right if I kind of got into that a bit before kind of addressing control. You can get into anything you'd like. Fantastic. So the year is 1781. Uh, I'm going to take you back all the way to, to the Constitutional Convention. We'll talk a little bit about where this sufficient, sufficient second cause comes from, right? Uh, because as James pointed out, it is in the Constitution, and it's one of very few things that the founders actually specified when it comes to the U.S. Congress, uh, is they provided for a sufficient second clause for the rest of congressional rules and process issues, they basically punted to Congress, but they did provide for a sufficient second clause of one fifth of a quorum. And if you're listening to this and making it through it, you might be thinking like, yeah, why did they pick one fifth of a quorum? Uh, and this kind of surprised me when we got into this research, but the answer is that one fifth of a quorum was meant to be a little bit higher a bar than what they had been operating under. Uh, I had mentioned this beforehand, but recorded voting really is an American phenomenon. It wasn't something that we saw regularly in you know, Great Britain or in other democratic uh, countries at the time. Uh, you'd seen a few states adopt it. And then under the Articles of Confederation, uh, they provided that any individual member could request the yeas and nays on any vote if they wanted to. This turned out to be a rough provision. And if you know anything about the Continental Congress or before the Constitution, you know, it was a fascinating legislature in terms of institutions that show you what not to do, right? It led to members constantly obstructing, as James suggested, but also forcing roll call votes on a large number of things that are fairly irrelevant. Because usually throughout congressional history, there's been one guy who tends to ruin everything for everybody else, uh, wants to put everybody on the record. Uh, wants to basically cause problems, raise points of order, and do a lot of things that can make lawmaking difficult. 
uh, in the Continental Congress, this was Elbridge Gary, right? Uh, everybody knows him for the for the gerrymander and, and whatnot. But uh, uh, if you study like roll call voting, he's mostly well known for causing issues during the Continental Congress in terms of forcing awkward roll call votes. He moved to divide, I think, every question. I think, James, I sent you that question about like where the motion to divide originated, just because Gary would force division votes on everything and then ask for recorded votes. I love the crazy division. We used to call it the clay pigeon, where you try to divide a, everything in a bill and, and force votes on each thing. Yeah. And I think like once like an article got written that uh, that used the term clay pigeon, then every member and their brother wanted to to use it because it was a cool sounding procedural term, which I'm sure annoyed the folks at CRS. So sort of in reaction to that, Constitutional Convention comes around and when we discuss accountability and transparency, it's always important to make the caveat up front that the Constitutional Convention was done behind closed doors, right? Uh, because they recognize some of the drawbacks in terms of everybody reporting on what it is they're doing at every moment. Uh, but at least according to Ferran's records, there was a pretty decent debate over the journal clause, right? With uh, yeah, one member, uh, I think, who was this? Rufus King and George Mason of Virginia rising in opposition to the rule. King argued it was unnecessary to exhibit this evidence of votes and improper as changes of opinion would be frequent in the course of business and would fill the minutes with contradictions. Mason concurred uh, and wanted to essentially remove any request for the uh, yeas and nays. Uh, on the other side, Governor Morris and Edmund Randolph wanted to amend it to allow basically for the Continental Congress provision that any one member could ask for the yeas and nays. Uh, and this debate continued for a while. Eventually, Roger Sherman fairly, I guess, famously to the extent anything in procedural history is famous, uh, but made an argument aggressively against arguing that this is going to lead to the stuffing of journals with votes on frivolous occasions and misleading the public who never know the reasons for determining the votes. So it was pretty clear if you go through that debate that the founders recognized quite well what the trade-offs of recorded voting was gonna be. Uh, and I think both sides were pretty well represented, right? Uh, John Jay makes this argument repeatedly that, hey, look, without recorded voting, we're gonna have no real way to hold members accountable, which is kind of the point you were raising, James. I think it's fair to say that the accountability argument makes sense in some areas, but in other areas, it's it's difficult for the same reasons why members probably don't need to fear roll call voting electorally on every issue, right? And if you talk to members, sometimes they'll say things like, oh, you know, I didn't uh, I didn't want to vote that way because I felt like this motion to recommit vote could be could be used by like electoral. And you're like, really, dude, a motion to recommit vote? People are people are watching that, uh, but it. It's fair to say that uh, you have seen this massive increase in roll calls, and a lot of them are on things that we wouldn't think are all that important from an accountability standpoint. Procedural votes are kind of the big, big thing, right? Uh, U.S. Congress, first off, does take a lot more roll call votes than you would expect a legislative body to, to take. I think uh, we had a stat in there that from 2015 to 2020, like the House took about 3,500 roll calls, which is more than twice the number of the Canadian Parliament and more than five times the number of the British Parliament. And I think the big distinction there is the, the number of votes on recorded provisions, uh, which are 
almost impossible for the general public to determine. You know, whenever I talk to students about this, I always tell them the story, and this is going to date how long we've been working on this book and why I desperately need to get it out. Uh, but in like 2015, I'd been in Georgia for a while. David Perdue is in this runoff election for an open Senate seat, and he's running against Jack Kingston in a Republican primary. Jack Kingston, longtime House appropriator. And I'm sitting at home and I'm watching this attack ad that shows Jack Kingston face. He's all black and white. And it's like, you know, the scary voiceover guy saying, uh, Jack Kingston is a Washington insider who voted 12 times to raise his own pay. And I remember watching that ad and thinking, oh, this is phenomenal, right? Not for Jack Kingston or for democracy, but for my career personally, because there's no way Jack Kingston, you know, a veteran House member is going to cast votes that are going to increase his benefits or raise his own pay. He knows better than that. Sure enough, you go home, you take a look at like, uh, you go to the computer, you take a look at what those votes were. They were all previous question motions on special rules, right? Which is, in my view, an objectively pretty stupid thing to have, to have a recorded vote on, right? Uh, uh, and they were being used because the idea with a previous question motion vote is that if the previous question motion is voted down, somebody in the minority side can offer an amendment to the rule, calling up whatever bill they wanted to. And a, a Democrat argued that they were going to call up a bill that was going to cut member pay. So you see these ads get used all the time in primaries in that capacity. Uh, so I'm a little skeptical that we're really getting a lot in terms of accountability from recorded votings. But I do think your point about control, James, is, is on the nose. Uh, and I don't know that I have like a great answer right uh, to that. I know members or party leaders in particular worry about a number of recorded votes because they could fraction their unity. You know, I know within the scholarship, we often talk about this as violating or harming the party's brand name. But for the life of me, I don't know that there's any evidence suggesting that having a number of members defect from your party position actually hurts your party electorally. And, you know, you certainly see the Cheney vote, obviously, within the Republican caucus going via, via voice. And it kind of fits that narrative that, hey, the party didn't want a bunch of potentially damaging votes uh, that could make it look like the party doesn't agree on every issue. But I just have not seen the the evidence that suggests that really is something that should be a viable electoral concern. Well, Julia, what do you think? Uh, do you agree with Peg Leg Morse? Um, or, you know, what, what, what's, what do you think about this whole concept of accountability and, and control and transparency? I mean, I think a lot about these things and I think this is sort of, this is sort of concerning. I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of, um, I'm going to answer your question with a question because I really want to get, I want to get Tony as, to, uh, use the the parlance of what we're talking about here on the, on the record about how we should think about this sort of filibuster debate and this interesting what I see as a sort of interesting debate in the media about whether cinema and mansion should should want to get rid of the filibuster because then they will be the pivotal votes and they will be so important that that sort of logic versus they don't want to be that they don't want to take that those votes. And that sort of gets at what you're talking about now with party brands and the relationship that some members have to them. But I, I'm curious is if this is, you know, one of those instances where essentially we have a lot of media stories that are being made up based on available evidence or whether this is actually a reasonable way to think about to think about the Senate. And again, I think we've kind of we've kind of gone back and forth on the degree to which this is a new thing. Clearly it has a long history and clearly there's always been you know, electoral pitfalls, but we are in this kind of new environment. And it, you know, should we be concerned that senators like kind of don't want to be 
pivotal or is that just based on nothing? You know, it's, it, it is a good question. I, I don't know the answer to that. I, my intuition is that cinema and mansion are already kind of taking that the heat they would get off a number of these votes. Right. Uh, I, you look at the way we've set this up with the uh, reconciliation process. Now it's not like he didn't cast a definitive vote that was no on raising the minimum wage, but Joe Manchin certainly took a ton of heat from the left uh, on the minimum wage for that position. Uh, Whether or not having the roll call itself would have added any additional value, I'm honestly not all that certain of. I think the biggest thing that uh, we should be concerned about from the accountability standpoint, uh, and and I'll I'll go back uh, to the filibuster point in a second too, because I do think there's something worth adding on that, is that, again, when we think about the control issue that uh, we've sort of been discussing, the founders worried about the sufficient, like they included the sufficient second clause to kind of dictate, like, to provide for some accountability uh, and transparency, while at the same point trying to rein in uh, dilatory behavior. The sufficient second clause eventually becomes insufficient uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, One of the most straightforward is that attendance got much better. uh, And so it was easier to kind of rack up that sufficient second in the mid 20th century. But the way leadership responded to this idea that, hey, the minority is going to force us to take roll call votes on everything is through a mechanism that I don't think uh, the founders really had a good feel for, which was they could use their positive agenda setting powers to craft these massively enormous pieces of legislation where interpreting a roll call vote yes or no on that bill could mean any of 4,226 different things. Uh, And I think that issue, even if you get past you know, even if members start voting on more provisions is going to be increasingly problematic, right? Is this like, they're just using the record to kind of spin different proposals uh, and providing cover that way. Uh, I do think from a filibuster standpoint and talking about filibuster reform, like the issue I wish people would kind of focus on a bit more, just like when we talk about how to reform the house and how to reform roll call voting is ask people, does this make Congress easier to understand? I often think that gets massively undervalued when we talk about how to make Congress, how to fix some of Congress's issues is right now, congressional complexity is just at an all time high. I often will joke with people that I think the best way to fix Congress is to make me and sorry, James, but James kind of irrelevant, right? Uh, Having people with PhDs that have to explain the day-to-day goings on of uh, how this institution works seems very problematic in terms of having the general public understand it, right? Uh, every time I try to explain what the hell a previous question motion vote on a martial law rule is uh, to a class is uh, always kind of reminds me that yeah, the public does not get into these discussions and explain the filibuster to a class, especially now with the expanded reconciliation rules. I got it. I think I'm just going to hide under my desk. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I've, I mean, I have the same PhD you guys do. I've actually taught ca- Congress a couple times, and I spent hours trying to prepare this kind of stuff. And it is sorry to interrupt you, but I, I want to, I, I really want to highlight this point because I think this is really important. 
about whether the public understands Congress. And I think about this in relation to Congress, but also in relation to, say, you know, my kind of thing, the, the presidential nomination system, which if you start looking at the formal part, and it's like, how are the delegates allocated? And, you know, what are the different rules? And how are they different from last time? And they differ across the states. And it's like, oh, my God, this is so complicated. And everything is like that, right? Local elections are like that. So many elements are like that. And maybe Congress is Congress stands out to me in some ways, as I think, particularly about my teaching experiences, but in other ways it doesn't. And I wonder, you know, what what we can make of this of this phenomenon. Is this is this a product of just having a really big and diverse country and having institutions kind of layered atop each other, or is this a deliberate strategy to obscure things that are going on? I don't know if you have thoughts about that. Thank you for letting me interrupt you. Sorry, we're a little we're a little loose today. No, by all means, please. Like I am much better if somebody is interrupting me, honestly. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I do have a lot of thoughts on, on that issue. If, uh, I think in general, anytime somebody asks if this is a deliberate strategy when it comes to American political history, my view is usually no. I don't think there's a ton of deliberate strategies going on. I think, uh, you know, the, the issue of layering, layering institutions on institutions on institutions has, has compounded, right, a, a number of these uh, sort of accountability or simplicity issues. Uh, so I don't think, at least explicitly, members have created a system that is so difficult to follow intentionally. I do think there are some benefits for them and that helps them kind of keep the current system in place. And I think you see this anytime you're looking at any massive like system type reforms. You go back and you look through like the campaign finance debate or the lobbying reforms debates or any of those sort of like systematic debates to the system. You see members, even those that vote for the, the bill who are reticent, right? These are members that got elected in this system uh, and don't necessarily want to see you know, substantial changes. So I think a lot of what we're seeing is just sort of like incremental change that after, you know, hundreds of years has led to a extremely complicated system. And, you know, I would say in some ways, needlessly complicated. You look at other legislative bodies and sure, there is some complexity. And I'm not saying that the general public needs to be able to intuit. I've had this debate a few times on Twitter that they should be able to like understand these things perfectly, right? Uh, there's always going to be some levels of complexity, but, you know, you look at something like why we can pass certain bills under reconciliation and we can't pass other bills under reconciliation. And that is a very difficult thing to explain uh, from a, both a policy standpoint and from a process standpoint. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't think this naturally intentional. Yeah, I mean, I certainly agree with you, and I don't mean to be a conspiracy theorist that lots of things in American politics are not the product of deliberate strategy. Maybe a, maybe a better way to think about this is that even at moments in which we're thinking, we're sort of thinking about transparency and accountability, like, say, the you know, post-Watergate reforms or whatever, and you referenced campaign finance, in which that is the the ostensible purpose, there really isn't anyone whose who's incentive it is to think about accountability. Accountability to the broader public is always going to be diffuse and subject to collective action problems. And every group that is kind of, even that if they're charged with that, right, an interest group that is for the public interest is still going to fundamentally be invested in, you know, in their own concerns. I think I just like invented political science. Sorry, I've just like laid out the, the day one of the problem of political science. But, you know, I, I guess... 
I'm thinking about how much more attention maybe should be paid to that. Like, I'm kind of thinking about the electoral blind spot in the bomb at all theory of, of parties, the idea that there is this sort of area in which voters like can't really don't can't can't don't really discern the difference between two different policies and don't really have preferences and that that's really advantageous to politicians to interest groups um and like lack of transparency is sort of analogous to that so i don't know this is this is now actually seeming like a much worse problem than it seemed to me at the beginning of the podcast that's what we try to do here right we ask questions and we end with more questions and hopefully along the way we are as i tell my students oftentimes i want to leave you more confused than ever but hopeful i don't know if those two things always go together but that's generally where i try to try to aim because that shows that you're, you're thinking i think so McConnell used to have this great saying, I think he got it from Durban. When I first started in the Senate, McConnell, who was at the time the 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 whip, the minority whip, or actually the majority whip, but he would say, if you don't like putting out fires, don't be a fireman. And if you don't want to take tough votes, don't be a senator. And it's really ironic if you think about where we've come and how many votes we see in the Senate today. But, you know, in, in trying to to pivot because we're running short on time here to to figure out how how lawmakers can conquer this fear, right? Or do they need help? Do they need a support group? Do they need a therapist? Do they need medication? I don't whatever it may be. How do we get beyond this? And maybe this isn't something that we get beyond because as Tony says, it's been with us for a very long time. But I do think there's something, and this goes back to what I, you know themes that we've talked about on this podcast with regard to polarization with regard to this idea that we have a red and a blue team that are highly cohesive um, and which I have big uh, problems with both of those very simplistic understandings of, of politics today. I think it's in the discipline of political science in the academy in the media. I think how we think about politics, generally speaking, is flawed and it's skewed and it doesn't reflect reality. And I think there is something to this control thing is if you think about it, who else doesn't like votes, right? When I worked in the Senate, one of the first things that I would do if I were working for a member and we were, had a campaign and we wanted to try to win on an issue, first is we got to figure out where everybody is. And so it's the first thing you do. You force a vote. You know who doesn't like forcing votes? K Street, lobbyists, people who are, are in a room or believe that they are in a room or want to try to get into a room where negotiations are happening, don't want to cast votes because votes reveal information and it could reveal that they're in a lot weaker position than they otherwise are. For someone playing an outside game, it's a lot more informative because you say, well, this is where we need to work. This is who we need to target, if you will. This is where we know the baseline is. And then you kind of go from there. But that implies an ongoing activity of lawmaking. It implies something like Jesse Helms. People always talk about poison pill amendments. Jesse Helms was offering amendments and messaging, sure, but he was messaging so that he could win elections over time and get members who would agree with him. He didn't win, of course, always, but that's why he forced these votes. Messaging is just lawmaking from a position of weakness, I always say. It's not something different from lawmaking. But it implies a, a kind of temporal understanding of the process. It's not something that we're just stamping out like, you know, license plates or Fords on a production line and, and like votes on the production line about when we should take lunch, get in the way of that. No, that's not that's not what Congress does. Congress is an ongoing activity and votes are a way that you participate in that activity, both inside the institution and outside the institution. 
And it seems to me that what can be scary can also be very empowering at the same time. It can be a way to telegraph your positions on things to, to constituents, to groups, to stakeholders. It can be a way to try to target and divide the other party or the other side of an issue when you're trying to win. Um, but we don't see that because the way we think about politics is and the way that the lawmakers think about politics is all about uh, production. It's all about building a widget and there's no process there. It's something that happens all at once and votes get in the way of that and they make it complicated and, and harder and they undermine that control. But I don't know. So to me, if I'm trying to tell people how we can get beyond this fear, whether it's rational or irrational, is to think differently about politics. But what do you think, Tony? Yeah, no, I think uh, I think that's a great, great segue. I and I know you and I have actually had this conversation a few times, and I'll admit that I've gone back and forth on the control issue. I think control is certainly key, uh, and you can go one of two ways with it. Uh, and I'll admit, too, that I'm in the minority of the minority of Congress scholars when I suggest the option two is, is a possibility that we should consider. But option one is uh, we start to we do the things we need to do to make rank and file members more independent, right? We actually start giving them resources, right? Uh, we, uh, uh, you know, increase uh, staffing budgets. We we weaken some of the control leadership has over them. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, that that is one option to kind of go down. And a second option is you lean into the control, right? Uh, you give parties more control uh, and you make the votes fairly irrelevant in that standpoint. And I think that is kind of what we're starting to see a bit is we talked about members being scared. But one of the things that jumped out at me, you know, a couple of Congresses ago, our last Congress, so you look at New York Republicans on that salt tax deduction, right? All of the media commentary is like, well, they're going to see a lot of uh, defections on this. And you listen to a lot of the Republicans that all voted for it, despite the fact that, you know, it's going to harm their state uh, or potentially harm them electorally is they said basically, hey, look, we're all going to get painted with the same party brush, right? Uh, whether or not like this vote is not going to buy us leeway with the general public. Uh, and I think you're seeing, you know, this premise pop up more and more, at least on the Republican side in the past few Congresses, that those members are first a little bit more worried about the primary constituency and, and second, uh, understanding that, hey, look, you know, they're going to get hit with that that party label as opposed to the any individual vote really buying them something in a in a general election constituency. Uh, so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's a couple of different ways you could go with uh, on the control issue uh, for me personally, because, again, we've been writing this book for a while and I've thought a lot about like, all right, how do you deal with the issue of roll call voting? Right. And I, I've done a nice job. I think we've done a nice job in the book explaining, you know, the things that led it to change. Right. The institutional reasons that we've seen this increase in it, the change in the perceived value of a recorded vote. Right. Uh, attack ads have certainly made it probably more valuable to the general public or to you know campaigns. Uh, but I, in terms of how do you reform this, like going back and forth on that question has been an enormous challenge. I think I've been staring at this conclusion section for like six months now trying to figure out how to write it. And the thing I keep coming back to is the point like we we're discussing about simplicity. Right. Uh, and just you know, what the effect it happens to have on individual members for me, needs to be secondary to what the impact it has on how the general public views or can interpret Congress, right? Uh, if this is something that makes Congress more 
traceable or followable to the general public, then I am excitedly for it, right? Uh, The thing I always joke about with students is I love the U.S. Congress, like absolutely love it. I've been obsessed with it for, you know, two decades. uh, And it's always the toughest part of teaching is trying to get students as excited about Congress and policymaking as I'm excited about Congress and policymaking. Uh, And I keep coming back to the point about complexity and it just being so difficult to to teach exactly how it operates, right? And so if there is a reform or set of reforms, and I think there are, I think we can start eliminating process votes in the same way a lot of state governments and other legislative bodies have dealt with process votes. uh, And I think there are a few other things you can do on that, then uh, then I'm for that, regardless of that actually helps members gain the courage to vote more often. Well, I, I think that the rules and the processes that we have to make decisions and govern ourselves should be empowering, not constraining. And so sign me up for that. And I got to unpack your your party control uh, argument here a little bit more in the weeks ahead. But uh, but Julia, what do you what do you think? What's the answer here? Oh, man, I really don't have an answer. I think I'm sort of landing where I often land in our podcast, which is that I think there are limits to how much institutional change can get at the core problems. I don't doubt that institutional rules can be better or at least less less bad. But it strikes me that, you know, the more I think about this question of accountability and of the the public's involvement, that, you know, the real problems are that, I I hesitate to say the answer is the real problems are this, but James did ask me what the answer was. And I'm kind of thinking about how the public, being, being someone who's sort of moderately attentive to politics, what that person would be, you know, I'm trying to get to the head of that person, right? The person who's sort of, they know who they're, who their members of Congress are, but they're not political scientists how they're thinking about all of this. And it strikes me that people in that situation have essentially been trained not to expect anything from their institutions. And that we've kind of lost this, lost the concept of a democracy with sort of push and pull and institutions that can represent the collective will. People are very zero sum in their thinking. Um, And so I'm sort of left with this, this set of, kind of despair driven questions about whether institutions can can really address that. Well, that's very cheerful way to end. Julia, thank (laughs) you for that. Uh, Sorry. So, I mean, I think just and I want to thank Tony here. I'm going to give you the last word, Tony. But I want to, you know, just, you know, try to put this all together. And I'm not sure how how to do that. And I keep coming back to this idea. I mean, and institutions ultimately are, you know, they reflect, they have a character and they have a quality to them and they reflect an activity, something that happens and how people think about that activity inside them. And, and they change when, when the people change how they think about that activity. And, and are institutions venues and places where people go to participate in the act of self-government or are they factories that, that, that produce widgets? And I think that's the big thing. And when they're and I think if in a lot of stuff and a lot of dysfunction or uh, reforms or solutions, uh, problems, benefits, everything else, whichever one of those two views we take of, say, an institution like Congress and the House and Senate, our kind of policy prescriptions, our reforms, the specifics are going to flow from one of those two general conceptions so far as I can tell. And I think that and, and you see this 
it's on both the left and the right, reformers, not reformers, and everybody in between. And I, and I think it is really fascinating. And it, and it does get to so many problems in our politics today. But with that uh, very poor job of uh, trying to tie things together, Tony, what uh, you got the last word here. What do you think? Oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah, so let me try and leave a little bit more optimism. Actually, I'm always bad about optimism. Uh, you know, I study legislative institutions from a historical standpoint. So, uh, you know, I, I'll try something here on that point. I, I will say that over the course of our research, one of the things we have found is that votes and their perceived importance, right, to campaigns have, have increased. But I also think the general public is increasingly cynical of what they mean, right? Any major campaign now features at least several rounds of dueling ads where you see one Republican accused one Democrat of something like voting to raise their own pay, and then that member is a, gets hit with the exact same ad, right? There's almost so many votes that it's guaranteed that this is going to pop up, and the rules for those you know, advertisements are so lax that you know, they can stretch a lot of different things. So I think slowly members are starting to learn that, hey, votes are less important than, than we used to, used to anticipate, right? Uh, which is probably beneficial. And, you know, we're probably not seeing that in the short term, but I, I do think that will continue, that we'll start seeing more sort of flooding the zones and more cynicism in terms of, hey, here's what we can take away from this from a campaign standpoint, more instances of like the SALT deduction uh, vote where, you know, members vote in a way that's consistent with their party and not necessarily with their district's preferences. And I think ultimately, you know, you talk about widgets and blue team, red team type politics we get, I think roll call votes step into that, right? Very much so that diminishing the importance of the roll call vote will get people away from thinking about that sort of red, blue, two teams going against each other, which ultimately, if you want to understand legislative policymaking or policymaking more broadly, is beneficial because so much of our contemporary policies that dominate the news do not come from massively partisan or votes that generate a great deal of attention, right? Uh, they come from things that uh, got tacked on on the last minute on a, you know, omnibus law or bureaucratic rules that stemmed out of ambiguous provisions and bills uh, and those types of things. And, you know, gearing the public's focus onto that, I think, and away from votes, right, is, is probably a, a plus. But thank you guys for having me. I really enjoyed this. Well, I mean, there you have it. The optimism is cynicism. It's very in character. I, very interesting way to turn things around there. But uh, this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to us. And uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. The Science of Politics is a podcast from the Niskanen Center that delivers fresh insights on the big trends driving American politics and policy today. Hosted by Matt Grossman, the show gives you a data-driven understanding of what's going on behind the scenes in American politics. Each episode is 30 minutes and includes a conversation with two researchers who have just published empirical studies on current topics. So you'll hear the latest research without the partisan punditry, 
on topics like Fox News, climate change and conservatives, how voters judge Congress, and the filibuster. Subscribe to Science of Politics on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.